Good morning. These notes are actually thanks to the suggestion of Lynn Angel uh, a number of weeks ago, <clears throat> and I thought we'd just experiment and see how that goes. You've got three frames of uh, PowerPoint there and some places to make notes, so you can, uh, you can keep up if you like, and you can even uh, take some notes and let me know what you think, and we'll see whether that's a venture worth doing or not. The text that we're dealing with today seems very distant and remote to most people. In past years, I've I've made the the remark in jest that we ought to have a scratch and sniff Bible. You know, when you get the Jonah and the whale, you could sort of scratch it. You could get the essence of what's going on inside that fish. And and I think that more uh, more recently, it's probably the uh, the tear out Bible. We'd have you know perforated pages. uh, so that when you just don't like this section, you just rip it out. And trust me, this would be one of the first texts to go. It is not a popular text, and most people see it as just utterly foreign and irrelevant, both in terms of the gifts that are employed in the church, as Paul describes them, and in terms of the format and the way in which church is conducted. I'm going to restrain myself this morning and not defend the, uh, the church order that we see described here, but I would say this. What we are doing uh, at Community Bible Chapel is an attempt to approximate what is done in these texts, and I'm actually going to come back to the uh, subject matter when I get to uh, 1 Timothy, which will be shortly, and we'll talk about uh, the church, and I'll even give you the title of that message. Can we do church cafeteria style? Uh, Many seem to think we can. I think this text is based upon the assumption that church was done as we see it described here. But let's leave that if we can. And I'm also not going to get uh, drawn into too much controversy today about what the text says about women. I'm simply going to tell you what the text says. I believe that's what it means But I'm not going to go into a lengthy defense of that. And again, 1 Timothy chapter 2 will give us an opportunity to explore that a bit further. You'll notice that these words, as introduced in verse 26, these words are the words of conclusion. How is it? Is that what the King James says? That sounds like, how is it, man? That almost sounds contemporary to me. But but it's saying, so what do we do? Where does all this lead? Uh, and, and it's not only then the conclusion of chapter 14, but you could clearly see it's the conclusion of chapters 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts. If you want to spread that back one more to include the church meeting in chapter 11, it surely is the conclusion to that. In fact, it's the conclusion to the whole book thus far as I see it. And, uh, and so we're looking at concluding words. Now, the reason I want to stress that is because It seems to me if you want to know what Paul is really saying, then you look at his conclusion. Uh, when uh, When you read a book and you want to find out, is this book worth reading, what do you do? Well, generally, you go to the end and you figure out, by looking at this guy's conclusions, do I really want to spend more time going through his whole argument? Well, this is Paul's conclusion. Chapter 11, where everybody flees desperately trying to salvage something on Paul's teaching on women, that's his introduction, folks. That's his introduction. Don't forget, this is the conclusion. You want to know what Paul has to say and where it goes? Look here, because that's what Paul is telling us. And we'll get to the authority of that in just a minute. 
These verses are obviously a corrective to some of the problems that have already been exposed uh, in the earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians. Problems like divisions that were introduced in chapter 1. But Paul makes it clear when the church gathers, chapter 11, that there are many divisions that are there. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for these different groups with their different ideologies or theologies to gather together and each one want to have a hearing for what they have to say. It's a correction to the self-indulgence of these people, which you see in chapter 10 in the matter of meat offered to idols, which you see in chapter 11 where the Corinthian Christians are gathering for church and they're eating too much, some of them, and others are not getting anything because nothing's left, and they're drinking too much, self-indulgence. And this chapter and these verses have to do with that. Basically, the meeting of the church was chaotic, as I understand its description in chapter 11 and as I see these correctives in chapter 14. And you'll notice that these verses pertain to the meeting of the church. That is, it is talking about the conduct of believers in church as they gather. And you'll notice also that it's addressing specifically uh, matters of speech. Now, the gathering of the church is only one context for the exercise of gifts, but I think you would, you would agree that in terms of those who participate, by and large, they're going to be participating verbally, and, and so that's the thing that Paul is, is addressing foremost. You'll notice that he focuses in our text on three particular groups of people. And, and one of the things I want you to do is as you think about this, everybody's eye is going to go down to the part on women. But he's talking about three groups and they're all related, as I understand it. He talks about those who are tongue speakers in verses 27 and 28, those who are prophets in verses 29 through, I say, 33a. Some people quibble with that. We'll look at that in a minute. And then those uh, words that are addressed to women in verses 33b through 35. And you'll notice on the the board I put 36. I can't make up my mind about verse 36, whether that's speaking specifically still in the context of women or whether it's speaking more broadly to the whole church. So I waffle a bit there. But let's, uh, let's start at the end, which sounds a little strange, but I think probably it's well for us to do that here. Beginning at the end, verse 36. Did the word of God begin with you or did it come to you alone? If anyone considers himself a prophet or spiritual person, he should acknowledge that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If someone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So then, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid anyone from speaking in tongues and do everything in a decent and orderly manner. Paul is emphasizing his authority. Before, I guess I would be inclined to say this. If you have a tear-out Bible, I would have this little word. Before you tear this page out, look at this. Paul says, what I am saying to you is not the ravings of some chauvinistic madman. That's taught in evangelical churches even. That Paul is some kind of a chauvinist who's got this huge hang-up about women and he just has to be disregarded, just like a bachelor or, or whatever they're saying about Paul. Paul says, 
The test for you in these verses is to acknowledge this is not just Paul's teaching. This is the command of Christ. Now, that ought to make us sit up on our seats and say, whoa, better listen a little more carefully to what's going on. So the test of authenticity, there were false apostles, as we know from 2 Corinthians, the test of authenticity and the test of spirituality begins with, is Paul's teaching authoritative? And to call it the command of Christ, it seems to me, is going about as far as you can to say, yes. Verses 39 and 40 summarize the instruction. So then, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid anyone from speaking in tongues and do everything in a decent and orderly manner. Seek prophecy. Now, remember that Paul has been teaching in the earlier verses of chapter 14 that as a rule, and especially without the interpretation of tongues, prophecy is the superior gift. And so the church is to seek those gifts which are superior. But they are not to forbid speaking in tongues. Prohibition is not the solution. The fact that there are abuses is no proof in and of itself that the gift of tongues could not exist. So Paul regulates how those gifts are used. He does not forbid the use of them. And in fact, he forbids us to forbid the use of those gifts if they are done in a way that is honoring to him and within the the guidelines that he has set down. Seek to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Everything should be done decently and in an orderly way. Everything should be done fittingly appropriately. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here you see that the whole church gathered together, and yet in the gathering of that church, you've got people who have come early, who have made a pig of themselves, and and who have already begun apparently having some communion wine, and so by the time the Lord's Supper is actually taking place, they are drunk and disorderly. It's like a barroom brawl. Folks, that is not being done decently. Would you agree? I mean, he's not speaking idle words here. He's speaking to a very undisciplined, unruly group of people when they gather. And and remember the consequences, Paul said, for that were, some of you are sick, some have died. That's how seriously God takes misconduct at his table. And they should be done in an orderly way. By the way, I want, to, I want to come back to that word decently. Look at this in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, because it's, uh, it's the same word. Let us live decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. Hmm, that sounds familiar, chapter 11. Not in sexual immorality. Hmm, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, immorality. And sensuality. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Not in discord, chapter 1, disunity, and jealousy. Woo, ouch! Living decently means setting aside those things that characterize the old life. Now, let's look at verse 26, setting the stage. 
having looked at the summation of what Paul is getting at, his words are given so that the church may conduct itself in a way that is orderly and decent, that is befitting of a meeting at which the remembrance is going to be made of our Lord's sacrifice, the Lord's table. And his words, Paul says, are the command of Christ. Having said that, verse 26 tells us how things, or reminds us of how things were. What should you do then, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Each one has a song, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now, folks, if each one means literally each one, (laughs) then that means everybody is coming to church not only prepared to speak, they come to church determined to speak. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, here you have, when he says of tongues and prophecy that they are going to have to do it one after the other, it might just be that what he's telling us is when people were speaking in tongues, they were doing it at the same time. When people were prophesying, here's one prophet wants to get his words out, prophet number two wants they're all talking at the same time. Can you imagine what that meeting looked like with that kind of unruly conduct? So it seems to me that while... We do need to come prepared for worship. And I noticed in, in, our, in our meeting this morning, I noticed people say, in thinking about, in preparing for the meeting this morning, I read this or looked at that. Excellent. That's not really what Paul's talking about here, though. He's talking about people, and notice, I, I should point out, that it seems to me that almost every area of contributions may be related to a gift. You might say, well, what about a song? Well, I mean, I suppose if they're saying number 28 in the brown hymnal, that, that may be something everybody could do. My sense is that it may well be that somebody has come with a song they have written. And if you knew my songwriting skills, you would know that it would have to be a spiritual gift for somebody to do that. And so all of these things that he's talking about appear to be spiritual gifts. Now, I want to hasten to say that I do not believe that every kind of participation in the church meeting has to be the expression of a spiritual gift. I don't think you have to have a spiritual gift of teaching to get up and read a text of Scripture or to pray for the elements. I think what is happening here, and the reason why he names these things that are related to gifts, is because gifts were a license for license. In other words, gifts... Where are, are my lion in the road? Well, I have this gift, and if I have this gift, by golly, I'm going to use it, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to hear it this Sunday. And if Joe Blow gets up in front of me, I'm going to get up right with him. So that when uh, David and Steve got up, it wouldn't happen like that, folks. David and Steve and a few others would have gotten up, and they'd have all spoken at the same time. Not one after the other orderly. So these things, I think, are the things that uh, some of the gifts that were characterizing the church and its, and its contribution. And while everybody ought to come prepared for worship, I don't think everybody is supposed to come prepared and determined to speak, because this text is about silence. Now, look at the things that he says. One, it is, it is uh, clear that he's talking about verbal participation Secondly, 
uh, he's talking about those areas which seem to be areas of gift or giftedness. Everybody seems determined to speak. And he lays out the governing principle. The principle that should govern the gathering of the saints is the principle of edification. That is, what you do or do not do, what you say or do not say, ought to be governed by whether or not it brings about the edification, the upbuilding of the body. Now let's turn specifically to the gift of tongues in verses 27 and 28. If someone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or at the least, at the most three, one after the other, and someone must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he should be silent in the church, let him speak to himself and to God. It seems like what he's saying is uh, two is maximum, two is ideal, three, okay, if you have to. But, But bottom line is no more than three. Three is the limit in terms of the exercise of that gift. And they must speak one at a time, not all together. And some of the instances, in fact, one of which I'm currently involved uh, with uh, at a distance, everybody's speaking at the same time. That's just chaos. In fact, friends, it's chaos in some cultures where they pray uh, in their own native languages at one time. I just, I, can't, I just have trouble praying when everybody's talking at the same time in all these different languages. I, I just don't have that good a focus. Maybe I'd get better at it with practice, but he says one at a time, in sequence, and there must be an interpreter. Now, it seems to me that it was apparent that in the church you recognize certain people to have certain gifts. And when you came to church on that particular morning or that particular evening and you had the gift of tongues, one of your tasks was to look out. And if interpreter A or interpreter B were not there, then basically you said to yourself, if the Spirit comes upon me, then I will speak to myself, I will speak to God, I will not speak publicly. Because Paul has already said, it will not be edifying to people who don't understand what you're saying. The principle is edification, there must be an interpreter. I take it that when he says, you can speak to yourself and to God, that there is some personal benefit that comes to that. And so God is not shortchanging, in a sense, that person with that gift. They have the, the, the personal gain that comes to them, but there is not the confusion that comes to the church, who just has no clue what has been said and what the meaning of that would be. Instructions for prophets. Verses 29 through 33. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate what is said. And if someone sitting down receives a revelation, the person who is speaking should conclude. You know, it's never happened in in the 30-some years that I've been here, but but it's always been in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm dead serious about this. It's always been in the back of my mind that someday I'm going to come to church and, 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 and there's going to either be somebody that shows up that we did not anticipate or whatever, and it's apparent that I'm not supposed to speak. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, but, but it seems to me that there's something going on and, and, uh, there that we ought to pay attention to. Uh, he says, You can all prophesy one after another so that all can learn and be encouraged. Indeed, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not characterized by disorder but by peace. This is an incredible set of statements. Let's look at them. Uh, 
Three at the most can speak. Two, no more than three. As good as prophecy is, enough is enough. That's what he's saying. And, and, and it's clear from this text that, in fact, someone could, could receive a revelation... And, and, and just in the process, in the, in the course of that meeting, if three prophets have already spoken, it, it seems to me what that person says is, God's got a revelation for me, and I'll save it. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's the, the, the week that follows. But it's not today. We'll get to that a little bit more. Speak one after the other. Again, it is to be done sequentially, not all simultaneously. And the prophecy is to be evaluated by others. Now, there is some question about who the others might be. Is that just the other prophets? Well, certainly other prophets would, would want to chime in on that process, wouldn't you think? Because their job is, is to hold to the truth and to see to it that the truth is proclaimed. But it, it may well be that it's saying everybody, everybody in the gathering is to listen to what is said under the label of a word from God and they better judge whether or not that really is the case. Now, it is possible, we know with Nathan, for example, that a prophet is not inspired 100% of the time. Is that not right? David says to Nathan, I want to build a temple. Nathan says, man, that sounds like a cool idea, dude. Go for it. <laughs> and then God has a little conversation with Nathan, and he comes back and says, um, actually, David, God said, no. It's your son who's going to build that temple, not you. That's inspiration. The other was just perspiration or something, but it wasn't, it wasn't what God said. A prophet is not speaking revelation all the time. So it is possible for someone to step outside, to step beyond their gift, and, and, and they need to be careful of that. By the way, some preachers do that. I do it. If you, if you use the authority of your position to, to propagate things that are not really Scripture things that are your own personal hang-ups, and, and that could be politics, it could be you name it. When you step outside the boundaries of thus saith the Lord, people need to judge that and say, I don't think so. And, and so it must be judged by those who are there. The prophet who is speaking should yield the floor to one who receives a, what I call a, a spontaneous revelation. My, my sense is that prophets don't necessarily, in fact, one might say prophets don't ordinarily get their revelation in their chair. The Lord may well speak to them, and, and they may think about that. They may think about the implications of it, and then they come to church, and, and they may share that. But wouldn't, wouldn't you say, you know, what, what is it like they do uh, on the Internet even when you go out to uh, one of those news pages and it'll say something like, you know, the latest breaking news or whatever. Well, what that's saying is, we're telling you what's happened in the last hour or so. So it would seem to me that the, that the prophet who gets a revelation in his chair has got breaking news <laughs> from God. And, and if, if I've got a two-week-old revelation, if it's waited two weeks, it could probably wait another week or two. Right? And so somehow... The fact that God has spoken in that way and that time may be an indication that that's a word that needs to be heard. But my point is, for someone to actually say, Brother, I'm going to yield to you. God's speaking to you. That, that's, that's a pretty amazing thing for somebody to be willing to do that. And yet that's what Paul requires. 
Now, I'm not sure I've got the right words here, but I say inspiration is not compulsion. Feeling the urge to speak is not necessarily God's prompting that you should. Even when that urge is from the Spirit. Now, is that not what happens in the case of tongues? Someone has uh, the, the gift of tongues comes upon them in the public meeting. They look about. They see that an interpreter is not present. They don't speak publicly. They speak to God and they speak to themselves. But they make a decision. Just having the inclination is not proof that one needs to do that. And he says, the spirits, by the way, it's interesting. I looked at every translation I could find and the spirits, are ne it's never capitalized. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I want to come back to this, but that, I think, is a very significant statement in the light of, of what we sometimes think of as a spirit-led meeting. I think people interpret spirit-leading as the impulse. You get a twitch or, or whatever it is, and, and somehow that's the spirit telling me to do so. Even when the spirit gives you the words, it may not be the time. That's my point. That's what Paul is saying, I believe. There is a time to be still, even though God may be working in you. Look at this last statement. God is characterized by order and peace, not chaos. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the, the whole world was null and void, some say. Jeremiah picks up that expression. Without a form substance uh, the uh, New American Standard says formless and void Net Bible says without shape and empty what I'm saying is when God started in creation what you see is chaos and God's working is to turn chaos into cosmos cosmos it basically means to give order to so when you get cosmetics <laughs> some, some of you are trying to get order to your face I mean that's really what it's saying I mean I look at myself in the mirror I need more than order man I need a whole reformation but but that's what the word cosmos means to give order to and so God is taking this chaotic state of events and he's separating light from darkness water from land and all of that and he is bringing things to order now, if that is the kind of God that we worship and serve, then why in the world would we think when you come to church, it ought to be chaos? That's what God came to cure, not what he came to bring up into his church. It ought to be marked by order, with cosmos, just as God is a God of order. Now, instructions to women, 33b through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, there is some dispute about whether they should go with the last or, the, or this. But hey, there's all kinds of statements that say the same thing in the context of this, so it really doesn't matter. The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Rather, let them be in submission, as in fact the law says. If they want to find out something, they should ask their husbands at home. Because it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. I honestly do not know how words could be more plain than this. I, I, I could not think of a way in which Paul could have spoken more plainly. I'm going to talk about waffling. I don't know if I spelled that right, but uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what it says. The silence of women is an act of submission. 
Isn't that what it says? It's an act of submission. It is in compliance. This is not some whole new revelatory thing that the church now says, whoa, never heard of that before. It's consistent with what the law had taught from the beginning. And he says, to speak in church for them is disgraceful. And lest one should want to squeeze that into something that, that really is inconsequential, he says, and it even goes to the asking of questions. Uh, now, we could play that one out a long ways, but it, it is not just the asking of information. Oftentimes, the asking of questions, those of you who are seminary students, you see that game all the time. Is it not true that if Paul said here such and such, and he said here such and such, that what he really meant was, that's a question? so to speak. By the way, the fall began with a question. Has God said? <laughs> it's just questions can get you in trouble. And what Paul is saying is that, that in order to maintain the order of things, that the wife ought to ask her own husband at home. Now, I say there's a whole lot of waffling. If you'll go to that frame, I, I like A.T. Robertson. This is back in the 40s, 39 or 40, I think, when this was published. Great Greek scholar. But I got to tell you, he's tap dancing. Then you ought to see him now. They're doing the Watusi with this thing. It says, you don't even know what that is. All right. There is no doubt at all as to Paul's meaning here. In church, the women are not allowed to speak nor even to ask questions. They are to do... Let me back up. There is no doubt at all as to Paul's meaning. I want to say that twice. They are to do that at home. He calls it a shame, as in 11.6. Certainly women are still in subjection to their husbands, or ought to be. But somehow modern Christians have concluded that Paul's commands on this subject, even in 1 Timothy 2.12, were meant for specific conditions that do not apply wholly now. In other words, we've ducked the whole thing. Women do most of the teaching in our Sunday school classes today. Here's the waffling. It is not easy to draw the line. It was very clear and no doubt back at the beginning. Now it's fuzzy. Why? Because a bunch of women are teaching Sunday school class. It seems. It seems clear that we need to be patient with each other as we try to understand Paul's real meaning here. That, friends, is waffling. And it gets better as, as time goes on. I, I, it's amazing to me that as you watch the culture move in a way that is, that is feminist, and you watch evangelical scholars rethinking their position, and doing all this fancy exegetical work, what, you just want to say, can't you read? You know, is it really that hard to understand what Paul is I don't think so. Now, let's talk about why it can be edifying. I want us to see the teaching uh, with respect to women in the context of the whole of what Paul has been saying. Because he has called for silence from tongue speakers, from prophets, and from women. Not just women. Is that not right? People should be silent that are men, not just women. How can silence edify the church? Well, it edifies the church when speech is confusing as in tongues that are uninterpreted, or people that are all speaking simultaneously so that you can't understand what anybody's saying. Silence is golden when it keeps confusing speech 
and utterances from being put upon the church. It helps to maintain proportion in the meeting of the church. Two are no more than three. What it's saying is there are various things that need to happen in church. Prayer, remember Acts chapter 2, they were diligently devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. There are things that need to happen when the church gathers. And unfortunately, it's true that no matter what our gift is, we have the inclination to think that is the solution to the church's problems. What they really need is more of me. No, not necessarily. Probably not. What they need is the body functioning together with all of the gifts, blending in to bring edification to others and glorification to our Lord Jesus. It gives others a chance to participate. You don't know how many times I sit there in my chair during the Lord's Supper and think about things I could say and sit on it. And, and, and the reason is that if I get up, somebody else doesn't. It's just that simple. I mean, if you've got to do it one at a time and you can't do it all at a time, like they were doing in Corinth, it's easy. Everybody can participate in Corinth. They just get up and do it together. But if you're going to do it one at a time, either you've got to have a whole lot of time or you have to regulate. And that's what Paul is saying. The silence allows for broader participation and broader balance in the nature of that participation. So far as the silence of women is concerned, there is edification that takes place because Paul says the angels are looking. Peter says the same thing. What happens in the church is being observed by angelic forces. But it's not just edifying to angelic beings. It is also edifying in the sense that when women remain silent, it's pretty obvious what gender has to take the lead. Is that not true? I mean, if, if the woman, if the wife... And I'm not sure there's discussion as to whether it's just woman or wife. But if the woman remains silent, then it better be a man that speaks or it's going to be a mighty quiet meeting. It edifies by helping men take leadership. And it demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. Love, at least, when you look in Galatians 5, love, peace, self-control are all the fruit of the Spirit. And they're manifested by silence. Not just by silence, but they are manifested by silence. Okay, I must hurry along. Guiding principles. What we do must be done for edification. When one makes the decision, do I get up or do I stay seated? Do I speak or do I remain silent? The question is, will others be edified? If two or three people have already done something of one kind then probably not because they need to be edified by some other kind of participation. Two, inspiration is not compulsion. That is huge. What is it, when we talk about a spirit-led meeting, what is it that gives us the assurance that what we are inclined to do is what the Spirit of God wants us to do? Now, frankly, that's a hard one. But I have to tell you, just the urge... Just the urge is not proof, as I think those texts. And even when the Spirit has prompted or given us the words that we could speak. Spirit leading involves our choices. Do you notice, and this is very interesting, it would have been so easy for the Spirit of God 
to work in such a way that you had two or maybe three tongue speakers and an interpreter there, then the Holy Spirit says, okay, turn that switch off. No more people get the Spirit in that way. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He may come upon somebody else, and now they must make the willful, purposeful decision not to speak, not because they have nothing to say, but because enough has been said. And that could go on and on. But the Spirit uses us and uses our discernment as to whether to speak. And and it is that interesting interchange between what God is doing and the responsibility that we have of making a decision. Do I speak or do I not? Love seeks edification and thus it requires self-control. We know from chapter 13 that what is missing in the church at Corinth was love. Love seeks the best of the other. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, he says back in chapter 8. Love seeks to build other people up. And in the process of doing that, it may mean a sacrifice on our part. I could go on, but I better stop with that. Love listens. Have you ever noticed sometimes in, in not only just our, our gathering here, but I'm thinking about conversations, and it's, I'm guilty of it. Have you ever noticed how we all have things that we want to share, and, and all we're waiting for is a pause? I mean, a pause where the guys, the gals, just get in their breath. <gasps> That's it. This is my shot. And, and we really screen off what they've said. And the context, when when Ephesians 4 says that we ought to be speaking according to the need of the moment, we ought to be listening. We ought to be saying to ourselves when somebody has raised a certain text or raised a certain subject, it is hypothetically possible they've led us off the trail and that somebody needs to bring it back. That happens. But it is also possible that the Spirit of God is moving us in a direction, and if I have something to say that doesn't fit that, then maybe I better be still. Maybe that's not the time for me to speak. I need to listen for what the need of the moment is if indeed I am going to do speak in a way or not speak in a way that edifies. Orderliness is an expression of godliness. What is it? Godliness is next to cleanliness. Well, it's next to order too. And uh, that ought to be evident in the church. Obedience to Paul's instructions are the test of true spirituality And the solution to abuse is not prohibition. You know, this is getting close to Christmas, and I thought about doing a Christmas message. By the way, you won't find it in your notes. But the incarnation of our Lord is a beautiful illustration. Is it not? Philippians chapter 2. Here our Lord has all this splendor and glory, and he has every right to display it. But he sets aside that which he could have done, and out of his concern for our needs, he sets that aside and he takes on human flesh and he lives out his life amongst us. I think about our Lord's silence. Do you ever think about that? People are commanded to be silent. Do you ever think about the Lord's silence? People kept saying to him, tell us who you are. (laughs) Well, Jesus wanted to show them who he was, not just tell them, but show them. So he kept silent at points where they wanted him to speak. He, uh, at the, uh, at the point of his crucifixion, Peter says, while they were reviling him, 
He did not revile in return. I would have had some things to say from the cross. I would have had some things. And it wouldn't have been just you bad boys. I'd have called down fire from heaven. Jesus was silent. That is that is amazing. But the point is, our Lord did that. Oh, one more kind of silence. Jesus said, I only speak those words which the Father has given me to say. Remember that? Multiple times in the Gospel of John. He could have had his own press conference, but he only spoke what the Father had given. Jesus was silent. That's my point. For edification, he sets the model for us. And Christmas gives us the opportunity to ponder that. So I know it's, uh, I'm only going to take a couple more minutes, but I want to, I want to talk about how do these things look at, at CBC? How should they look? Number one, the way in which we gather on Sundays, in my opinion, is the best way to discover, develop, and deploy spiritual gifts. Paul's teaching here about silence is in the midst of three chapters that deal with spiritual gifts. I believe that spiritual gifts are best developed in the environment that we see described uh, in these verses. Things at CBC are not identical with those at Corinth. For example, it seems that they had a meal when they observed the Lord's Supper, and we do not. So the chance for you to come... Now, we have potlucks, and there we get fat and sassy at those. But, but as a rule, we don't come and have a meal like they do. And, and I'll tell you one thing that, that is a significant difference that I think we need to think about. When people talk about a spirit-led meeting, which means anybody can do what they think they're prompted to do, which also means we'll go long, long, long. Those people in that day were willing to go past midnight to where a guy could fall out a window we have trouble getting to noon. Is that not right? They had time. We think we don't. And and all I'm saying is, if we are going to put ourselves within those restricted parameters, folks, then, then the structure and the organization has to increase, does it not? If we are to have a balance of things that get done that are important to do, then we have to set boundaries because people aren't willing to stay here till 6 tonight as they are in some parts of the world to this day. That's just the reality of life. We need to listen before we speak. We need to strive for the fruit of the Spirit because it is the fruit of the Spirit in us that brings about love, that brings about self-control, and ultimately then that will bring about, in some instances, silent. And we really need to think about what it means to have a spirit-led meeting. I think this text really challenges us. When it says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, then we have to ask ourselves, how is the spirit leading me to speak or not to speak? And whether I have the urge or the lack of it is not proof. Frankly, folks, there are people with urges that need to suppress them. And there are people without urges that need to get them. You need to get the urge to speak about our Lord Jesus, whether you're courageous or talkative or whatever it is. Silence is so that other people can speak. And some of you aren't speaking. Some of us may be speaking too much. But silence is not to have long pauses, folks. This pause brought to you in a spirit-directed fashion. There's a time, there's a time when it is good 
to be able to have a silent time to reflect. But not all silence is edifying. It is silence that yields the floor to other people, other men who have things to say that will lead us closer to our Lord. Well, I think I better stop there. That ought to give us a few things to to think about, maybe to come and challenge me about. But this, this is an important part of who we are and what we do. And what I'm trying to say is this text applies to us because we're trying to do the things that this text says are going on in a meeting. And it's important that we listen to what Paul is saying. Father, we thank you for these words. It is our desire to edify others, and it is our desire most of all to glorify you. And Lord Jesus, we think about the way in which uh, you came and ministered to us. I was thinking about the worship meeting this morning, and I was thinking about Psalm 107, and I, I realized that most all of those cries for help were cries for physical help. And when we look at Romans chapter 3, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after you. Lord, we're not even crying. We're not even crying for help, for salvation, because as unbelievers, we're enemies. Thank you that you came when we were not seeking, when we were not crying for help. You came, and through your Spirit, you showed us we were sinners and that we needed to trust in you. If there's someone here this morning who has never Acknowledge their sin, their helplessness, their hopelessness eternally because of their sin. We pray that they would see that in the coming of the Lord Jesus, he came to bear our sins, to bear our punishment, and that they may trust in him, that your spirit would show them why he has come and that they might place their trust in him and be forever saved in Jesus' name. Amen.